Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? I hope that you are staying hopeful in the Lord, uh, that you are staying prayerfully dependent on him through this extended season. Um, I have been praying for you. I'm going to continue to do that. I am eager to see each of you uh, in person, face to face again. But for now, uh, for another Sunday, here I stand in my daughter's bedroom uh, in front of a camera. Um, I hope and I trust that God will bless our time today as we open his word again. Let's pray together. Father, you are our hope. You are our peace and our contentment, our joy, uh, no matter what the circumstances of life throw at us. I pray, Lord, now as we open the Bible, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about five years ago, uh, there was a special announcement made at the University of Chicago. Uh, the announcement was that a wealthy family had made a $100 million donation to the university. However, that donation, that gift, came with strings attached. The money was to be used to establish a uh, public policy institution uh, with only world-class faculty being hired to teach there. Well, after only about two or three years, when things weren't quite panning out in the way that the donors had expected, they ended up launching a lawsuit against the university to reclaim every installment of the cash that had already been paid out, which at that point was almost $23 million. This was a case where the giving of a significant sum of money foisted an expectation on the recipient of the money and when that expectation wasn't met, it ended up very badly in a lawsuit. Well, in, in the Greco-Roman uh, society in which the Apostle Paul lived, this same idea of giving to somebody with the expectation that you would gain something in return for your gift, this was a much more prevalent and a much more common system than it is even in our day. This system was so common in Paul's day um, it, it, that it, it, it became known as, and it still is known as today, the patron-client system. And as Matthew Harmon says, the patron-client system was central to the fabric of Greco-Roman society. Again, the basic idea was, I donate to you, I give you a gift, and I expect a return of some kind, some honor of some kind uh, for the kind donation that I have given. Well, as Paul now closes the letter to the Philippians, he expresses his gratitude for the donation, for the gift that the Philippians had sent to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. But Paul, in this passage, he makes it quite clear, as the letter closes, that that patron-client system that, that everybody normally operated under uh, during that time period, that is not the system that applies to Christian believers. 
The matter of giving and receiving in the kingdom of Jesus is a very different animal. It has a different set of rules. Uh, it's of a different nature than what the Philippians had understood uh, from their culture. Let's go now to these verses, which are the last verses in Philippians. Uh, we start today at Philippians 4, verse 10. And as we begin, I just want to give you a brief heads up that today's sermon is going to be a top-heavy sermon. So in other words, our main focus today is going to be on verses 10 through 13. We will still read uh, verses 14 through 23 together. Uh, but when we get to those, those verses, the pace will quicken a little bit. So, in verse 10, Paul says to the Philippians, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, what was it that Paul had wanted from the Philippians back in verse 4 of this chapter? There he had wanted the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And now here at 4.10, Paul simply is practicing what he had preached to the Philippians. He himself here, notice, is rejoicing greatly in the Lord. The Philippians had sent Paul their gift. They had sent him their financial support. But Paul does not say here, I rejoiced in your gift. He says rather, I rejoiced in the Lord because it had been the Lord who had worked on the Philippians, prompting them to send their gift to Paul. And this is why Paul rejoices in the Lord. Now, according to what we read in this verse, there had been a season, there had been a long period of time during which the Philippians had been unable to send a financial gift to Paul for his missionary work. When Paul says here, now at length you have revived your concern for me, what he's doing there is he's alluding to the fact that there had been this season when the Philippians had not been able to send him any support. However, this did not mean that the Philippians had stopped feeling concern for Paul. He says here, indeed, you were concerned. It was just that the Philippians had lacked opportunity, as Paul says here. They had lacked opportunity to send him a gift during that season. Well, what had the circumstances been uh, for the Philippians? What, what had prevented them from sending support to Paul? The short answer is we can't be entirely sure about what the circumstances were, but it's possible that either the Philippians were lacking funds uh, during that season, and so they couldn't send anything to the apostle, or perhaps because of Paul's constant travels around the region, it had been hard for them to kind of nail him down, to, to get a gift into his hands because he was moving around uh, so much. And of course, back then in the ancient Near East, there was no uh, e-transfer or anything of the sort. But just notice here that Paul wants the church to know that he wasn't sitting there stewing in prison, uh, wondering aloud why the Philippians weren't sending any help his way. Rather, he knew that the Philippians had been concerned for him all along. It's just that their circumstances had prevented them 
from sending a gift. He wants them to know that he knows all about this. He knows they were consistently uh, concerned for him. Verse 11, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, at first glance here, when Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, uh, it may strike us as being slightly rude under the circumstances. The Philippians had sent their financial gift by the hand of Epaphroditus to Paul. Epaphroditus had risked his life to get this gift uh, to Paul. And now Paul says effectively, oh, I'm not in need. Uh, thanks for your gift, but I really don't need it. It's like when you give a gift to somebody at Christmas and the person says, well, thanks for the gift, but you know, I really don't need this. That's uh, offensive when we hear somebody say that. But I think we have to bear uh, two or three things in mind here as we read verse 11. First of all, remember, as we talked about at the beginning, that patron-client system where um, I see you in need in some way, and then I give you a gift, but I expect some sort of honor in return. Remember that. Well, Paul does not want the Philippians, the Philippian believers, to be operating in that sort of a system. Paul does not want these Christians to gravitate to that idea where, they, where if they gave a gift uh, to the Apostle Paul who's in need, uh, that they would then expect honor in return. He doesn't want them to be operating by that system. So he makes it clear here that in fact, he was not in need. We see here that Paul is sort of downplaying the financial gift itself, isn't he? And he's doing that because what he really valued more than the financial gift was the friendship of the Philippians, which had prompted them to give this gift. Their friendship was really the thing that he valued. The gift itself, it was nice, but it was secondary. And then also, Paul here, ever the teacher, he's trying in this verse to teach the Philippians about contentment. He says at the end of the verse, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So before the gift from the Philippians ever came into Paul's hands, Paul was content. He was content in the Lord. And Paul wants the Philippians to follow his lead. Uh, he wants them to be content themselves in the Lord and to be content in any and all circumstances. Now, what is contentment? In my own Christian walk over the years, I've often come back uh, to the classic definition or a classic definition of Christian contentment that's found in the Puritan uh, Jeremiah Burroughs little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Here's what Burroughs says about what contentment is, quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, 
gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Well, I think that's a wonderful uh, description of the contentment that should be ours as believers in Jesus Christ. One more time, I'll read it to you. Quote, Christian contentment, says Burroughs, is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every <clears throat> condition. Close quote. Well, I want to be the kind of person that fits that description, don't you? But what I want you to pay attention to in verse 11 is, is something very important uh, when we're talking about contentment, something very important, and that's this. That Paul says, listen, that he says he had to sit as a student in the school of life in order to get to this place where now he was contented in every situation. Notice this. He says, I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So there was a learning process that even the great apostle Paul had to undertake in order to get to this level of contentment. contentment. Well, that, that is just super encouraging, encouraging to a person like me. Uh, Paul's contentment in every situation did not come to him overnight. There was a learning process. And what does learning involve? Well, it involves practice. Learning involves making mistakes, failing, and then getting up and trying again. Learning takes time. I really appreciate what Dennis Johnson says here. He says, quote, Christ-centered contentment is not pre-installed on our hearts like a software program preloaded into a new computer. It takes practice. Contentment grows over time as we face adverse situations in finance, health, relationships, or other areas. And as we seek Christ's strength to release our grip on his gifts while we strengthen our grasp on his grace. Close quote. It's a great quote. You know, as I read uh, verse 11 this past week, as, as I listened to Paul say here that he learned contentment in every situation that he faced, um, I felt pretty convicted. How many silly things can interrupt my contentment? Uh, a broken light switch, um, a one-hour update uh, on Windows 10, um, too much salt in the spaghetti sauce, silly things that can disrupt my contentment. I want to become a thoroughly contented person in every situation. I want to learn with the Apostle Paul contentment. Paul was a person, listen, he was a person who was genuinely content even as he sat there in prison awaiting word on whether he would live or die. I want that kind of contentment. 
Now I can see that I have much to learn as I open this part of the scriptures. How about you? Well, let's move to verse 12 now, where Paul expands on the contentment that he had. He describes it further. He outlines it further. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, right away here, Paul's juxtapositions or his, his uh, contrasts really jump out at us, don't they? So he contrasts, notice he contrasts being brought low with abounding. And then near the end of the verse, he contrasts having plenty with being hungry. And he also contrasts having abundance with being in need. It's like he's describing here polar opposites, contrasting extremes that each and every one of us can experience in this life. In some seasons, we might not have two nickels to rub together, while at other times, our bank account might be flush with cash. In certain times of life, we might find it hard to even put bread on the table, and at other times, we might have an expensive meal that's sitting in front of us waiting to be eaten. But now listen, in all of those circumstances, and I stress all of those circumstances, whether we have an abundance or whether we have next to nothing, in all of those situations, it is possible, listen, it is possible for us to be discontented people. See, it's not just when you have next to nothing that you might become discontent. <clears throat> it's also when you have the jet ski and the summer place and the amazing stock por portfolio and uh, the big house. You can still be discontent in that situation as well. The extremely poor person might say, well, I'm discontent because I just wish I had one loaf of bread. But the extremely rich person might also say, well, I'm discontent because my 5,000 square foot home is not 7,000 square feet. The point I'm trying to make is that discontentment can happen no matter how much you have or how much you don't have. Which is why Paul says in our verse that it wasn't just that he had to learn how to be brought low, how to face hunger, how to face need. It wasn't just that. It was also that he had to learn how to abound, how to face plenty, how to face abundance. There were dangers to be found in both of those extremes and dangers to be found in every situation that fell in between those two extremes. Discontent was possible even for Paul in any situation. But Paul says here, notice, that he had learned the secret. Notice that word in the text, the secret. Paul had discovered the unlock code, 
that would keep him from discontent in every and every, any and every circumstance. Well, what was the, the unlocked code? What was the secret? Well, he reveals the secret to us in the very next verse. Now, Philippians 4.13 is where we're at. And that is a verse that most of us know, that most of us love. But I dare say that in popular usage, it's a verse that is so often divorced from the context in which it's found here in Philippians 4. Paul says now, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the secret to Paul's contentment in every situation. There is the unlock code. The secret to Paul maintaining this constant equal equilibrium, this inner equilibrium that he had, whether he's in plenty or in want, whether he has abundance or he's in a season of need, the secret is the presence of Christ himself. The presence of Christ himself in Paul's life. The spiritual strengthening that Christ gives Paul in every situation. Paul's experience of contentment is not dependent on anything that is in him. It is rather dependent on the living Jesus. Paul's contentment is not dependent on whether he's got money in the bank or he has to go to the food bank. It's not dependent on whether he has food on the table or not. His, his contentment, we need to notice, is in the person of Christ. He says here that he can do all things through the strengthening of Jesus. And the all things here is shorthand for the various situations that he's just outlined in verse 12. The plenty and the hunger, the abundance and the need. No matter what situation or circumstance he was in, it was Christ who was the center of Paul's contentment and the source of his contentment. So then, in the context of Philippians 4, in the context, this 13th verse here that, that many of us know, know uh, so well, what is it emphasizing in the context? It's emphasizing an ability through our union with Jesus to be content in each and every circumstance. Some of us, I think, have misapplied this verse. For example, just give you one example. Say we're doing, you're doing a job interview and you say, well, I'm going to nail this interview. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's going to give me supernatural power to get this job. Well, that's not the best application of this verse because it's taking the verse out of context. Perhaps a deeper application of the verse uh, to honor the context in which it's found would be to preach it to yourself when you don't get the job. Christ is my contentment even without this job. I can do all things, including being rejected for this job, 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My contentment is not dependent on getting that job. My contentment is dependent on Christ. Well, as I said at the beginning, this was going to be a front-loaded sermon. So we've got through verse 13. We're going to go a little quicker now through the rest of the letter to the Philippians. Paul has just talked about how his contentment is centered in Jesus. Now he says, Yet, Philippians, it was kind of you to what? Kind of you to send your gift? No. Paul says here, notice, it was kind of you to share my trouble. See, in sending their financial support to Paul while he was there in prison, what the Philippians were doing is they were sharing, they were participating with Paul in his trouble in his imprisonment. By their gesture of kindness, they were showing solidarity with Paul's sufferings. Just as we in the West, who so far, we, we aren't suffering greatly for our faith so far, but we can show solidarity with our brothers and sisters worldwide who are being persecuted for their faith by doing what? Well, first of all, by learning their stories, by praying for them, by reaching out to them in some way, sharing resources with them even. We share in their trouble in that way. And biblically, uh, it's right here in our text. Verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel. Now, by the beginning of the gospel here, Paul means... During that time when I started my ministry among you, Philippians, uh, some 10 years earlier, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, Acts 16 and Acts 17 tell the story that Paul is alluding to here. Uh, in those early days of the church plant in Philippi, he actually had spent considerable time in the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, he'd spent time in several cities, including Philippi and Thessalonica and other cities. And then eventually Paul had left the province of Macedonia to go to Athens. Now, when he left Macedonia to go to Athens, the Philippian church was the only church in partnership with him in terms of finances. They had been sacrificial in their giving, generous in their giving, to support the missionary efforts of Paul. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, so, so even while Paul was still in the province of Macedonia before he had left in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, Paul had not been in Thessalonica for very long. We know that. But even in that short amount of time that he was there, the Philippians had reached out to him with financial support more than one time. Verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Back in verse 11, remember that Paul had said, not that I am speaking of being in need. And now here in verse 17, he says, 
not that I seek the gift. So again, here in verse 17, Paul, we find him here sort of downplaying the gift itself again. Of course, he's, he's grateful for the gift, but as he says, he wasn't seeking it. Well, what was he seeking? He says here he was seeking the fruit that increases to the credit of the Philippians. Now, the fruit that Paul has in mind here is the advancement of the gospel that has been made possible by the sacrificial giving of the Philippians. And Paul says here, this, this fruit, this advancement of the gospel that was happening, this is going to increase to the credit of these people who have given so much to support the work. Matthew Harmon gives us a good little summary here. He says, quote, The imagery seems to be of the Philippians seeing their heavenly accounts overflowing as a result of their sacrificial giving to the advancement of the gospel, close quote. What we notice here in verse 17 is that Paul, notice this, he's more interested in the effect on the Philippians that their financial giving will have than he is on the effect that their gift will have on himself. Verse 18 now here we have some humor, a little bit of humor. You can detect a smile on Paul's face as he writes this. He says, I have received full payment and more. Uh, the original Greek here has an accounting term from the world of business that means paid in full. So it's sort of like Paul is giving the Philippians a receipt here uh, for their giving. And in fact, uh, in the Good News Bible, they've translated it that way. So in the Good News Bible, this verse begins with these words. Here then is my receipt for everything that you have given me. So, so there's a touch of humor here in Paul. This is a friendly thing. Um, the idea is, thanks so much for your generous donation. Here's your receipt. With a smile on his face, he says this. The verse continues as Paul says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now here it's worth just briefly pausing over a couple of things. First of all, notice that Paul purposely employs terminology from the world of priestly sacrifice uh, as he describes the giving of the Philippians. The phrase fragrant offering, that comes straight out of the Old Testament. So just as two examples, Noah had offered burnt offerings on the altar, uh, which gave off a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it says in the text. And in Leviticus 4.31, there we have an instruction for priests to burn an animal offering on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the Philippians' gift to Paul was a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering. And he says also here that their gift was a sacrifice. Notice the sacrificial terminology, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So we have this priestly language here uh, to describe their gift. 
The second thing to take note of in this verse, uh, which John Kitchen has helpfully pointed out, is that there are four parties, four parties involved in the process of giving. Notice this. We have the Philippians who gave their gift. We have Epaphroditus who carried the gift. We have Paul who received the gift. And we have God who is the worshipful focus of the entire giving process. When you give sacrificially to Snowden Baptist Church, you are one of four parties who are involved. Of course, you're involved giving your gift, but God is the main party involved in the giving. He's the worshipful focus of your giving. But your gift then that you give uh, on Sunday, well, when we get back together, uh, your, your gift that you give uh, is then distributed through the stewardship of the church leadership, the third party. And then finally, it is distributed to the recipient or the recipients of the gift, the fourth party, so that the gospel can be advanced. Let's go to verse 19, another very popular verse in Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul has just said, hasn't he? He said in the last verse that he himself is well supplied. And now because Paul has total confidence in the Lord, he promises the church here that God will supply all of our needs also. And not only financial needs. I think we need to see this a little broader. God will supply needed encouragement and he will supply uh, needed humility and he will supply the peace that we need, etc. And then Paul just erupts in praise to quote uh, Matthew Harmon. In verse 20, Paul says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives this doxology here, this praise to God as his letter is winding up. And then as he really gets set to close the letter, Paul now gives his personal greetings to the Philippians. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now notice again there that Paul wants to be inclusive, every saint. For this entire letter, he's been expressing his desire for unity to increase amongst the Philippians. Greet every saint. Don't leave anybody out. And then he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is interesting. Now, at the very start of the letter, back at 113, uh, Paul had talked there about how the gospel had been advancing even to the whole imperial guard. Remember that? The whole imperial guard was hearing the gospel, even as Paul uh, labored there, languished in prison. Well, now as the letter closes, we get this new window into the fact that the gospel had broken through to certain people in Caesar's household, who Paul calls saints here. Now, who are these people? Well, they would be civil servants. They would be slaves, freed slaves also. Uh, who were working in the service of the emperor. They had become saints, according to Paul. They had become believers. Uh, 
And this had happened through Paul's ministry there in the prison. And now here are these people, they're wanting to send a greeting back to their fellow brothers and sisters in Philippi who they had never even met. This is a very uh, wonderful and beautiful thing that happens here. And, and then Paul closes, finally, he closes the letter to the Philippians with a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul wants the grace of Jesus to rest upon the spirits of each and every one of his, of his dear Philippian friends. Well, here we are at the very end of this letter to the Philippians. It's, it's hard to believe that we started this sermon series way back at the very beginning of January. It was right in the new year when we started. Little did we know then what we know now, that 2020 would be an incredibly challenging year, that our circumstances would change so radically from what they had been in 2019. So I think it's fitting, very fitting, that this sermon series in this particular year closes with this theme of contentment. In this roller coaster ride of changing circumstances that we are currently in, does your contentment have deep roots in the living Jesus? Is it centered in Jesus or does your contentment depend on being in happy circumstances? Are you a person who is still contented when, to quote uh, Habakkuk, the fig tree fails to blossom and there is no fruit on the vines? Are you still contented then? Am I? Well, I'm going to commit to pray for you, for each of you this week, uh, my Snowden family, that God would teach us to learn contentment in every circumstance, doesn't matter what it is, just as Paul had learned to be content in every circumstance, that, that each of us, myself included, would grow to be people who would have what Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs described as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'm going to pray that we become people like that. Amen. God bless you.